No, not at all. Uh, Alexander Downey came to visit the Australians in East Timor in August 1999, and he said then quite clearly, quite explicitly, that the Australian government's preferred position was for uh, East Timor to remain within Indonesia, that there would be no military intervention, and that the Australians there at that time would be on their own. Certainly. Now, I guess at the, at the heart of this of these uh, declassified U.S. documents is, is this uh, fact that you know the Australian government at the time was very much trying to distance the uh, I guess the central government in Jakarta from some of the the actions in in East Timor. But there definitely seems to be a, a, a sort of a direct link or even a directive from the Indonesian military to uh, to I guess stoke up discontent within East Timor and even you know, in the form of sort of uh, plainclothes paramilitary groups. Well, was that evident at the time? And, and do you think that, uh, you know, that played into Australia's uh, role and decisions of the time? Yeah, look, Indonesia made clear that they did not want uh, international military involvement and that to engage in that uh, that sort of involvement would, would damage relations with uh, respective countries. So the Australian government from early in 1999 actually told the Australian army to step step down, to stand down and to not prepare for an intervention. Uh, that was in uh, March, April 1999. And we know this because the information has uh, subsequently been leaked. And this was, it was leaked um, about uh, 16 years ago, uh, 17 years ago. But that information was actually publicly, publicly available at that time. So the government said to the military, to the Australian army, do not prepare for intervention. We are not going to Timor. Alexander Downer came to East Timor and said, we will not intervene, we will not be involved, we want East Timor to remain within Indonesia. And that uh, that there's... And the Indonesian line was, and the Australian government adopted it at the time, was that this is essentially a conflict between two competing groups within East Timor. Now, I was there at that time. I was there when Alexander Downer made that statement uh, and was quite taken aback by it. But I was also there when I saw literally Indonesian soldiers leading militias uh, in attacks against villages. I was there when I saw Indonesian soldiers handing over weapon, automatic weapons to uh, militia members. I mean, I saw it with my own eyes. So it's pretty irrefutable uh, that the Indonesian government was deeply involved. And I subsequently wrote a book on it, which actually tracked the relationship between the various militias and the local uh, Indonesian army groups. So there was a direct structural relationship between each militia and a regional Indonesian army commander. Certainly. And I'll get to uh, perhaps some of the machinations of the Indonesian uh, government of the time. But just looking at, I guess, Australia's involvement, there are perhaps different and conflicting narratives as to why we did eventually get involved in the uh, the independence of Timor-Leste. Uh, perhaps on, on one hand, there is the, the more cynical view that we got involved purely for uh, you know, mineral resources in the oil and gas fields. And of course, this has all come up again with the, the, the bugging of the, the cabinet room in, in Dili. As, as Scott Morrison has recently uh, visited the region, all this has sort of come up again. And I guess on one hand, we have this this narrative that Australia only got involved out of self-interest. Of course, these documents point to perhaps more US uh, pressure uh, being placed on Australia to, to be involved. And, and maybe the truth is is somewhere in between or, or, or elsewhere. I mean, how do you read uh, Australia's uh, decision to to finally get involved in, in the uh, independence of East Timor? 
Well, my strong understanding is that it had nothing to do with the oil reserve in the TMOC, that that was very much a secondary or even tertiary consideration. Uh, simply, Australia wanted to maintain good relations with Indonesia. It didn't want to essentially get involved in a war with Indonesia over East Timor, and that was uh, a possibility for quite a while. So the main uh, driver for Australia's in in intervention was twofold. There was huge public pressure on the Australian government at the time, and it, it, in a way it couldn't. It couldn't avoid becoming involved. It was uh, There was a strong sense that it was morally obliged to do so and that it would have backfired very badly on the Howard government had he not... Uh, sent Australian troops to to East Timor. The second issue is that the Indone uh, sorry the U.S. government, uh, in particular President Bill Clinton, did in fact actively push for Australian involvement. And John Howard had a conversation with Bill Clinton and asked him for American troops to actually intervene to save Australia the potential embarrassment of. Um, of disturbing relations with Indonesia. Bill Clinton said, no, we're involved in Kosovo. Uh, there was a, a NATO campaign in Serbia at the time to get the Serbians to let go of Kosovo. Uh, it was a big bombing campaign. And and Bill Clinton said, no, we, we can't do it. We we expect you as, as the regional, quote-unquote, deputy sheriff to act as uh, part of the coalition, part of the alliance, and to take this responsibility yourself. Now, Howard bowed to that pressure, but he said, look, we can't, we can't just go in uh, and force our way into a country. That would be an act of war. So Clinton went to the IMF and the International Monetary Fund. Indonesia was in great economic trouble at that time. And uh, the IMF said, unless you allow an international force into East Timor, we will cut off all funding via the IMF to bail out the Indonesian economy. And the Indonesian president, Habibi, had no choice but to accede to that demand. Now, in recent weeks, we've seen uh, a sort of heightened level of activity around the issue of West Papua in Indonesia. And uh, granted, I you know, know that this isn't so much your specific uh, field of research. However, there seems to be this sort of, uh, you know, not only on one hand, a resurgence of uh, somewhat of an independence movement uh, in, in a push in West Papua, but also a, a crackdown from the Indonesian state with uh, Yoko Widodo really seeming to sort of try and... Uh, I guess, prove himself as, as a sort of a, a strong sort of state leader. Uh, we have had the recent sort of six deaths of uh, West Papuan activists. Do, do you see any sort of recurring themes in regard to West Papua and East Timor, sort of, you know, the, the 20, 30 years difference? Of course, the struggle in for independence in West Papua has been ongoing for a long time. But do you see any similarities at all? And do you see any disparity in terms of the Australian government's, uh, I guess, action or lack of action in regard to West Papua compared to East Timor? Yeah, look, the situation in West Papua is similar in some respects, different in others. Uh, East Timor was never regarded as part of Indonesia under international law. Uh, it was never recognised by the United Nations. So that's a fundamental distinction. West Papua is recognised by the United Nations as part of Indonesia. So that makes it very much different. Um, very much more difficult for the UN Security Council to pass a Chapter 7 resolution concerning in, uh, intervention. So you can't intervene in another country without that sort of permission. Otherwise, it is an act of war. Australia has what's known as the Lombok Treaty with Indonesia, and that actually uh, specifically precludes any 
government involvement in West Papua or in the relation to West Papua. So there's real differences there. Uh, the West Papua independence movement's not nearly as strong as it was in East Timor in, in, the, uh, in the 90s. The international support for West Papua um, is not as strong, and it, there's, that's not a moral judgment of whether it should or shouldn't be. It's just a simple statement of fact. Now, what we've seen in West Papua recently is that the disparate uh, pro-independence groups, of which there was at one point over 40, uh, have essentially coalesced now under the umbrella of the United Liberation Movement for West Papua. And they've been pushing since the beginning of this year uh, for a voice with the Indonesian government. We've been rejected so far. But as led to a, a much higher degree of activi activism by West Papuans and uh, the clashes that we've seen recently. The other, the other factor that fed into that was the Pacific Island Forums when it met a couple of weeks ago uh, passed a resolution to call on Indonesia to allow into West Papua the United Nations Human Rights Commissioner to conduct investigations into allegations of human rights abuses. Indonesia said it would do so and then has refused to actually grant the visa for the Human Rights Commissioner to enter West Papua. So the, the West Papuan students, uh, when this started, were protesting in support of that Pacific Island Forum resolution. And it was when they were protesting, they were attacked initially by police and then by uh, gangs of Indonesians who linked the police. And that's what sparked the riots, which have been ongoing since then. Damien, just uh, finally, I guess looking at the, the history of Australia's involvement in East Timor and particularly in relation to the declassification of these documents that, uh, as we've been discussing, uh, paint a very different picture than perhaps uh, portrayed by the Howard government at the time. I mean, what, what lessons do you think it, it really uh, perhaps should give us in terms of our role within the region? Australia often kind of considers itself as a bit of a, a watchdog in the region and, and particularly our relationship with Indonesia. And what lessons do do you think can be drawn from this in terms of our our role within the sort of the geopolitical uh, dynamics in Southeast Asia? Well, I think that Australia needs to understand that it should work cooperatively with its neighbours to start with, and, and by and large, it does do that. There, there are a number of training programs which involve um, military forces from around Southeast Asia and uh, Asia more more broadly. Uh, Really, I think we need to recognise that the events of 1999 were not a case of Australia taking some principal stand, but really a government that was panicked and then pushed into uh, engaging in a, a multilateral intervention under the auspices of the United Nations. So it was only with the blessing of the United Nations uh, Security Council that Australia could, in fact, actually lead the intercept uh, intervention in East Timor at that time. The, there's always going to be a bit of rewriting of history and John Howard, the former Prime Minister, certainly engaged in that. I think he's actually called the intervention in East Timor his proudest moment, given he was diametrically opposed to it and actually uh, told the uh, Australian Defence Force to stand down, to not prepare for an intervention, meant that when it was finally decided that there would be an intervention, the Australian Defence Force was woefully underprepared and it scrambled. It had literally had to scramble to get ready to, to intervene with something like a, a week or so's notice. I know how difficult this was for the ADF because 
the planning of that intervention, and it was quite meticulously planned, was done in an, on an ad hoc basis. The map that they used for the intervention to actually work out where they would land and where the supply bases and landing bases would be uh, was pieced together out of uh, maps that they had lying around the office. And I know this because I have it on my study wall. I was uh, lucky enough to uh, receive that through a contact and um, it's a reminder of what an ad hoc exercise that uh, whole intervention was.